0: continuing our series on Hebrews. Um, And when we come to uh, chapter two, we come to uh, a part of scripture which is incredibly rich and incredibly dense. Uh, Theologically, there's a lot in this. Uh, It was incredible to try and and study it and then figure out some way to actually put it together that would make some sort of coherent sense. So I hope in some way, I've attempted that tonight, and that we'll be able to follow it Uh, as I say it is incredibly rich um, and there's so much blessing and wondrous stuff in here Uh, but we'll try and see if we can make sense of it now so far uh, in the book of Hebrews uh, the author has been at pains to point out the exalted status the, the supremacy of Jesus over the angels. Uh, we've seen all this uh, in chapter 1. And although angels uh, played a very important part in, in the revelation of God in the past, Jesus was better. That was his conclusion. The readers of this letter were exhorted, you will remember. Um, uh, most of them would have been probably from uh, a Jewish uh, background. Uh, and at this um, point in history, uh, the, in the early church, they were, he was exhorting them because they were coming under increasing pressure, increasing pressure to abandon uh, their Christian faith uh, in Jesus and go back to uh, a Jewish understanding, uh, back to Jewish practices once again, to abandon Christianity and to go back to where they'd grown up. Reasons for this were, of course, there was a certain amount of of persecution within the Roman Empire at the time. The Roman Empire did not recognize Christianity as an acceptable uh, religion. And then also there was the uh, internal pressures they were facing, their sinful, evil heart, the longing for a, a more straightforward and better life, and longing not to have to suffer for the name of Christ at this point, um, of course in in the history of uh, the Roman Empire, local economics was uh, of the various regions was all tied up with cultic religious practices with temples here, there, and everywhere, and that meant that, as a christian you you find it. Uh, very difficult because you were necessarily excluded from a lot of what went on. Life became more difficult. Becoming a Christian meant a great sacrifice. It meant a great sacrifice socially in terms of those who would associate with you. It meant a sacrifice economically because you were excluded from the public square. As well, of course, in terms of, of family who people would have, uh, who people, family, who would have thought they had been rejected as they saw it. As they saw it, they had been rejected because you no longer followed what their fathers followed and their fathers before them, and you've stepped out of a, a family history. They would have seen it as a snub. So to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus was particularly difficult. Yeah, but that was not all the problems they had. Add into this mix that these Christians were, of course, viewed as worshipping a God who had died a criminal's death. On a cross, where criminals are crucified. And you begin to see just how difficult it was to try and get people to see why you were following Jesus of Nazareth. You add all these things together, you get a very real pressure emerging on these people. A real pressure to go back, to go back to what something that was acceptable to Jewish religion, which of course was a recognized religion in the empire. But as the author of Hebrews has pointed out in chapter 1, the idea of simply abandoning Jesus is absurd. Because it's in Jesus that we see who God really is. It's in Jesus that we find the full, the final picture of who God is. As he reveals himself to his people. <clears throat> Therefore, to ignore what God has spoken through Jesus in these last days. And is an act of, of really unparalleled folly. For you won't get to God any other way. However... It's one thing, of course, for these early Christians to follow the exalted Lord Jesus, who was at the right hand of God, who had all authority in heaven and earth. He looked like a God. But it's quite another to think of Jesus as a man, a crucified man. And man he was. He bled. He got hungry. Grew tired, needed sleep. He was tempted. He wore clothes. He grew a beard worked as a carpenter for part of his life. But then here is the age-old question that has been asked down through so many years by so many people. Why was it necessary for Jesus then to become a man? Why was it necessary for Jesus to take on human flesh and blood, to come amongst us and to die in the way that he did? Was Jesus even a man, we might ask? Maybe he was something other than a man, a kind of spirit person or something like that. A higher being of some sort, not a man at all. Maybe, could God stoop down to become a man? Well, the author to the Hebrews, after being at pains to point out the exalted and divine status of Jesus, in chapter 2, moves us to show us why Jesus had to be a man of flesh and blood. Why it was necessary that Jesus would come down to become like us, like you and me. I think there's three main things in this chapter that we can look at to try and help answer this question. Restoration, destruction, and redemption. Restoration, destruction, and redemption. Firstly, Jesus became a man in order to bring restoration. That is to bring restoration to humankind, to mankind, to you and me. Verse 5, where we pick it up. uh, Again, uh, the the argument that the author has been making from from chapter 1. He has went on a slight detour in verses 1 to 4 of of chapter 2, giving that uh, part of his his warning. Uh, And then he picks up again in verse 5 where he left off. Considering the idea of Jesus being superior to the angels, so he says that the world to come is not subject to angels. Here we need to see that the author uh, has been speaking about the new world order, if you like uh, that has it has begun with the, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, this new age that has begun but as yet is not fully complete, um, as we'll see in a moment or two, it's this age to come that the author now wants us to think about. And it's this age that he says is not subject to angels. Now, commentators and things will tell you that there's various evidence to suggest that uh, Jew and Jewish thought that the current world that we inhabit was said to be governed by angels. So you'll find uh, things like in the book of Daniel, you get that idea. But the author wants to make the point, plain, that the age to come, the age that has been inaugurated through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, will not be governed by angels. But who then will govern the age to come? And then he brings us to the quote from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, uh, of course, the psalm of, of King David. He wrote it as he looked at the, the wonder Of God's magnificent creation he looked at the moon he looked at the stars he looked at the scale of all that God had created and then he asked the question in the psalm after thinking on this vast creation what is man what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him what is man compared to this vast creation How small a part mankind is compared to all that God has created in the universe. And yet God has given a unique place in his creation to mankind. He has given him honor and and the wonder of being made a little lower than the angels. That is not that he is inferior somehow less special. Rather, it's saying that God has given him such a high place in the created order that he is just slightly lower than even the angels, those other created beings who serve God in the unseen world. And what's more, mankind has been given dominion over all things that God has made. Here the psalm speaks in, in exactly the same terms as Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Mankind is king. Under God, over all that God has created. God has put everything under his feet. So high a position does mankind have in the order of creation when they are such seemingly small and fragile compared to all the rest. It causes King David to sit and wonder and declare the glory of the Lord's name, as we sang in the psalm earlier. Now, why does the author quote from Psalm 8? Well, you might think, if you're anything like me, that when you see that title in Psalm 8, Son of Man, that the author there is giving us a reference, ultimately, to Jesus. And so everything is under Jesus' feet, as he has already said in the previous chapter. And well, you'd be wrong, in a way. This psalm does point us to Christ, of course, but not in this way. The title son of man here, although Jesus used that most often for himself, um, uh, as a way of describing himself, uh, does not speak as such to Jesus here. Rather, the psalm is talking about mankind in general, human beings, and it uses the term son of man as a parallel to man. That is, Son of Man here is a a kind of representative man who represents all mankind that God has created. But this is the thing we need to see. The author of the psalm is meditating on mankind's place in God's created order. But the author speaks uh, of all God's creation being placed under his feet under his control, under his dominion, under his authority. And that leads us to a very big dilemma. Because it doesn't take very long for us to realize that as we look at the world we live in, it most certainly is not under our control. Human beings struggle even to control themselves, let alone the creation. Because we are a fallen race, after Adam's fall, after Adam's sin, we... We fail to control our world. We fail to have authority over it. We, the world is characterized by frustration, by exploitation. Even to consider back as recently as the 20th century, surely highlights for, the fact, highlights for a fact that this world is most certainly not under human beings' control, mankind's control. How many millions died in the 20th century? Died due to war? Died due to famine? Some man-made famines imposed by dictators? Ethnic cleansing? And downright brutality? Most certainly this world is not under our control. So what then does this psalm speak about? Well, think back. Remember, the author is speaking of the world. The world to come. And we begin to see what's in his mind here. For the author is speaking, and Psalm 8 is pointing to a time when the vision of this psalm will be fulfilled. And mankind will indeed have everything under his feet as God created it to be in the beginning, that which was lost through Adam. And that time is in the world to come. The world that has begun with Jesus through his death, resurrection, and ascension to God's right hand, but as yet is not fully realized. That's what the author points out, verses 8 and 9. At present, we do not see everything subject to him. That is mankind. We don't see the vision of this psalm yet. The world we live in is still broken, filled with evil with sinful people as well as the children of God at present we do not see the fulfillment of the age to come but what do we see we see Jesus we see the one who came down from heaven and lived amongst us died so that by the grace of God he would taste death for everyone the word see here is of course in Hebrews see with the eyes of faith we don't see the reality of Psalm 8. It's complete fulfillment. But we see Jesus. Who became for a little time. Lower than the angels. And took human flesh. And in the incarnation of the son of God. In order to taste death for everyone. And what's more it wasn't just to taste death for everyone that Jesus came as a man. He, became, he came to be The second, Adam. The head and champion of a new people. A new humanity. A humanity which will indeed at the very end fulfill exactly what this psalm speaks of and describes. For Jesus came to restore fallen humanity's image. And restore its its glory. The glory that Adam was first created with. The image of God. Jesus, the divine image bearer, brings with him, verse 10, many sons to glory. And the reason he can do this is because he became the author of our salvation. Now, this this word author essentially means pioneer. uh, One who conquers and goes before. A bit like uh, if you think about it, the pioneer settlers into the American colonies in the 16th century. They were the first ones to go and make settlements. And as they got them up and running, others followed. They were the pioneers. So Jesus is our pioneer. He is the one who has come to be our new king, our new leader, the new head of a new humanity, to undo what Adam has done. In order for him to be able to restore the fallen glory of man. Jesus needed to be like us then, to be one of us. So it was fitting, says the author, that God, the creator and sustainer of everything should make Jesus our pioneer, our champion, perfect through suffering. Now, why would Jesus have to be made perfect? Was he not always perfect? Yes, correct. He was always perfect. What is the author speaking of then? Well, it's not to do with moral perfection. It's more to do with a ceremonial perfection. Jesus became the perfect savior, the perfect high priest, as we will see later. God made Jesus the perfect savior through his suffering and death so that he could bring a fallen race in Adam back into a restored relationship with the creator of all things. So that is why Jesus became a man, to become the perfect savior, to be able to bring us to God through his death for us on the cross and to go before us into heaven and to inaugurate this new age. And since Jesus is the same family as us, that is human, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Once we were God's enemies, Objects of his wrath. And now through the perfect saviour, our pioneer, our champion. We are as brothers and sisters on the same path that he has, tre- he has tread. The path to glory. Waiting for a time when he will bring to complete fulfillment the vision of Simeon. Where his brothers and sisters will reign with him over a new heavens and new earth. Jesus became a man. In order to restore us to the place of glory and honor that God intended for us in the world to come. In verse 12 and uh, 13, the author continues his quotations, Old Testament, in order to prove the point he's making again. This time it comes from, uh, first one comes from Psalm 22. And then the other two from uh, Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, You'll see that if you look at your footnotes. Don't have time to go into these tonight, but... uh, The quotes are there to show that just how Jesus shows solidarity with his people. He calls us brothers. He calls us children. The last quote. So that is the first reason we find here that Jesus had to become a man. To restore the fallen glory of Adam's helpless race. And secondly, in verses 14 and 15, we find that Jesus became a man in order to destroy... To destroy death death is the last enemy the silent hunter who stalks us all our lives from the moment of our birth we set out on a path that will lead to the grave one out of one person dies because of Adam's failure the whole race after him was destined to experience death both physically and spiritually but as the author has already hinted here in verse 9 Jesus became a man in order to share in our humanity. He was the same as us. Divine, yes, but also human. With flesh and blood, like us. And he too experienced death. He died. He died on the cross. And it was through that death that he destroyed the one who holds the power of death. Satan, the one who was first uh, first tempted Eve in the garden... It was him who who is called in the book of Revelation the accusers, the accuser of the brothers, the accuser of Christians. For that is what he does. He knows God is holy. He knows God is just. And he knows that we are rebellious. And he knows that we are sinful. And that we disobey God. So he becomes the persecutor. He becomes the prosecutor who proclaims our guilt. And because the penalty of sin is death... That death must take place. God's holiness demands it. Yet because Jesus shared in our humanity, he was able to die in our place. He became our substitute. He he died in our place. The death that was required because of our sin was provided, not by us. But by Jesus, who tasted death for everyone. And so he destroyed the power of Satan to accuse us. Since the payment has been made, since justice has been maintained through Jesus' death, we cannot be accused. Death is defeated. Its power over us is broken. Death, which has caused so much fear, need no longer be feared. Because through Jesus, through his death, It is transformed from a judgment of terrible proportions to the gateway to glory. What a thought. The very purpose of Jesus' incarnation was his death. The reason for Christmas was Easter. The reason Jesus learned to walk was so that he could walk the hill to Calvary. To die in your place and in my place so free us from the fear and power of death. Yes, all of us will still face death. Each of us here tonight. We will all experience it. But how wonderful to know that by faith in Jesus and his death. We have hoped that that death has indeed lost its sting. That the grave has no victory. That after death there is life. Notice verse 16 here. Who is it that Jesus helps? Is it the angels? You'll read through the whole Bible and you'll find a startling fact. No fallen angel has ever been redeemed. No fallen angel was ever purchased by the blood of Christ. The grace of God did not come to fallen angels. Jesus did not become an angel in order to help them. He became a human being in order to help the children of Abraham. That is those who have the same faith as Abraham. Faith in God and his promises. Jesus shared in our humanity in order to destroy death. Liberate us from its slavery and the fear of it. So that we would live free from its tyranny. And finally, Jesus became a man in order to become our high priest so that he could make atonement for our sins. 17, verse 17 and 18. Or in other words, he came to redeem us. Jesus became like us in every way. He shared our humanity in order to be a faithful and merciful high priest. You see, a priest, as a priest, it was necessary for Jesus to be a man just like us in order to represent us before God. Like Aaron and the people of Israel, he was taken from amongst the people in order to minister before God on behalf of the people. His task was, of course, always in the Old Testament to make atonement through the blood of bulls, through the blood of goats, and the various sacrifices that had to be done so that he would atone for his people's sin. So Jesus came to be our great high priest who by his own death and resurrection would provide us with the perfect sacrifice that would not just atone for our sins until the next time it was necessary like in the old covenant with Aaron. Rather, his death, by the grace of God, would be sufficient to make atonement for all time for the sins of his people, once for all time. For those whom he called brothers, from those whom he called his children that God had given him. And because he is merciful, and because he is faithful, that is because he is faithful even to the point of death, even when he could have chosen the easy path, he continued on to the cross to die for us. Because he is faithful and how he has been faithful. Think of the garden. Think of that time before the crucifixion. He sweated drops of blood. He could have chosen easier path, but he didn't. He drank the cup and he drank it to the dregs. The cup of God's wrath. And so, because he is faithful, has been faithful right to the very end, he can now sympathize with us, sympathize with those who face temptations and trials. His suffering was for us. He tasted suffering like a man. He was a man. And yet he was faithful, even to the point of death. And he is now able to help those who are also being tempted. People like the first readers of this letter who were tempted to give up to take the easy way out to forget about jesus to be ashamed of the crucified messiah king because he knew what it was to be tempted because he knew what it was to suffer he is able to help them he is he able to help us today as we are tempted as we suffer Jesus is the faithful high priest. Son of man who came to us so that we could be restored to God. Man on a cross who died that we would be liberated from the fear of death. The great high priest who died in our place and was condemned so that we would be his brothers and sisters, his children, and be accepted by God and saved from his judgment. That is why Jesus became a man. That is why it was fitting for God through his suffering of death to make him our pioneer, our perfect champion, our perfect savior, qualified to bring us salvation, qualified to sympathize with us in our temptations and in our life. So what then is the response that is necessary? How are we to live in the light of this great and wonderful truth that Jesus became a man for us? That he left the realms of glory and came and dwelt amongst us? That he took on this feeble frame in order to die so that you might live? What do we say to this? What do we say to the man who now lives in heaven at the right hand of the Father whose very life up there guarantees ours? Well, I think the answer comes in chapter 3 verse 1 not to run too much into the next sermon. But our response must be the same as the first readers of this letter. You see it there in verse 1. Fix our thoughts on Jesus. And I was coming down the roads. I was coming in tonight. And I was on uh, Strathmartin Road, I think it is. And just as you reach the street before the roundabout, the sun was at the perfect angle to be beaming straight down the road. And I couldn't see a thing. All I could do was to look at the number plate of the car in front of me and hope that he was going in the right direction because I had no clue what else was going on. I had to fix my eyes on that car and I had to trust that he was going where I needed to go. Friends, you need to fix your eyes. You need to fix your thoughts on Jesus. You need to follow him where he has walked and where he has gone. Trust in him alone. No other is able to provide us with what he can. No other can be our pioneer reigning in heaven. No other can destroy death. No other can sympathize with us in our temptations and our weakness like him, our priest, our high priest. It's only in Jesus the man, Jesus the God-man, that we receive and experience the grace of God. So we must look to him in faith must find our help in him in times of trouble and temptation because he is our only savior, our only priest who can perfectly sympathize with us because in the words of Hebrews here he is the son who became a man who died for us so that we would be sons and daughters of God. Fix your thoughts on Jesus who was faithful and the one who, who provides us with all that we need in time of trouble and temptation let us pray Father we thank you for Jesus we thank you that he did become flesh and dwell amongst us that he revealed his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We thank you that it is in him that we find our help. It is in him that we find who you really are. We thank you that he came to restore us to that which you had originally designed, to restore your image within us. Lord, we thank you that he came to destroy death and the one who has the power of death, that the devil is now disarmed, but he cannot hold us in fear of death any longer because christ has risen and he reigns victorious and we thank you lord jesus that you came to be our faithful and merciful high priest that you ever lead, live to intercede for us and that you are able to help in our time of need gracious father help us to look to you in faith knowing all that you have done for us and guide us ever on the path to glory that we may be with you where you are. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's wwwstpeters dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically please visit the website of Solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.